Nancy Frick did a great job last week of kicking off our new series called Wake from Resurrection to Pentecost. And we will be looking over these next several weeks until um, June 8th, which is Pentecost, and um, looking at what happened, some of the stories of, of how uh, people experienced the risen Savior uh, on Easter Sunday and then all the way up until the time when the Spirit of God came down and uh, fell afresh uh, on the early church. And so this morning, we'll be looking uh, at a text from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. So I invite you to read along or to uh, simply listen to these words from Luke. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing them. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all of the scriptures. And as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. Because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
on this Resurrection Sunday morning, we pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. So our story this morning begins with the phrase, on that same day. And so if we're trying to figure out, if we want to figure out exactly what this story is, it's important for us to figure out what what is the same day. And it's uh, the same day as the Easter text. We're already having communion here. As the Easter text, nice. As the Easter text, um, nothing like me to point that out, right? All right. um, That we studied two weeks ago. Hopefully you remember that. Two weeks ago, of course, was Easter Sunday, right? Everyone remember Easter Sunday? All right, good. And so on Easter Sunday, uh, we'll recall that the story, we, it opens up by the, the women going to the tomb. And they, they, didn't go with, they didn't go with breakfast in order to, to, to share with the risen Savior. They went with spices, right, in order to help to properly bury Jesus. And that even when they went into the empty tomb, even then they didn't think, hey, Jesus must be alive. No, they were simply wondering, well, what happened to him? And only when the angels came down and said, don't you remember what Jesus said, how he would be raised from the dead? Only then did they begin, at least slowly, to believe. And so they went back and they told the 11, the men who were gathered around in a house, and and they told them, guess what happened? And here's what the angels told us. And Did the men believe them? That's decent. Okay. No, they didn't believe them. Right? They thought it was an idle tale. Literally, they said they must be delirious. But Peter, Peter still had the courage, right, to to say, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to see. And sure enough, he went out and he saw the empty tomb. And depending upon what version you want to use, it either says that he went away amazed or that he went away shaking his head. And so there's not even real clarity then that Peter really believed. And so the Easter passage that we talked about two weeks ago ended up being less about the risen Savior and more about how much the disciples found it difficult to believe the outlandish claim that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And all of a sudden now, we're on the same day. But instead of the sun rising, the sun is beginning to set. And we find ourselves walking alongside two disciples, Cleopas and and an unknown disciple. And they're walking to Emmaus, about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And it seems like they aren't much different from any of the other disciples, men or women. They were not eager to believe in the resurrected Savior either, were they? I mean, we know this, of course, because what are they doing? They're, they're leaving Jerusalem. They're walking back to Emmaus. I mean, picture this, if you will, that, that if they were there in Jerusalem and they really believed, how might they react? I mean, if you were there and you thought, Jesus really is alive. This is incredible. He's raised from the dead. Let's go home. No, what would you do? If you thought that Jesus was really alive, but no one had yet seen him, what would you begin to do? You would begin to find him, right? You'd try to think, what are, what are some of his favorite haunts, right? I mean, we know that Jesus loves Bob's Burgers, so perhaps he's there. 
Or we know that, that, that Jesus loves the movie Goonies, right? And so maybe let's go to the theater, right? It's amazing, by the way, that Jesus and my taste are very similar, if you're curious. And so, but you would go wherever you could in order to find the risen Savior. But they don't do that, do they? No, they, they're walking away from Jerusalem. Clearly, they do not yet believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so they're going. My guess is they're probably shuffling their feet. They're talking perhaps at some points quickly, rapidly back and forth. And at other times, there's a steely silence. A stranger is walking beside them. Oh, who knows how long He'd been there. The stranger could have been there for quite some time. As you know, when you get in an emotion like the disciple, sometimes you're oblivious to everything else that might be going on around you. And so then finally, the stranger speaks up. Now we're told that the people, that the two disciples didn't actually recognize him, that they were made to not recognize him. And oftentimes we think that, well, perhaps that's because Jesus miraculously made sure that they didn't see him. I'm not sure it's that. Quite frankly, anyone who has ever battled grief or any kind of depression can tell you that when you're wrestling with that, a person who might be a friend actually looks like a stranger. And that even the most beautiful of sunsets can look gray and uninviting and uninspiring. And so here, the depressed, the disappointed, the saddened, perhaps the afraid disciples are walking along when all of a sudden Jesus says to them, the stranger, what are you talking about? And the disciples, my guess is, both indignantly and with a great amount of irony, say, are you the only person in all of this area who does not know what has been happening in Jerusalem over the last few days? And Jesus, somewhat coyly, right, with with perhaps a Cheshire grin, says, oh, what things? And so the disciples begin to tell Jesus everything that had been happening about Jesus over the last several days. About, about everything that had been going on, leading all the way up to the day when, 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 the, when the women had seen the angels. So finally they finished and, and they ended, of course, or they didn't end with this, but the phrase, my guess is, that kept going on in Jesus' head, that kept ringing in his ears, was when the disciples said, and we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And at this point, Jesus tees off on them. And he begins to tell them, my guess is, with a bit of joy and perhaps a bit of disappointment and maybe even a wee bit of anger, he begins to help them to see everything that had been going on from the time of Moses and the prophets all the way up to Easter Sunday. He began to describe for them why everything had to happen as it did. He began to help them to interpret Scripture the correct way. And can't you just imagine as the disciples are walking to Emmaus that their minds are racing, that they're trying to interpret everything that he's saying, that they're wondering, could this be true? What does this all mean? And of course, right at that point, all of 
of a sudden they're there at Emmaus. And Jesus acts as if he's going to keep on walking along. I oftentimes wonder, this is absolutely unimportant for anything, but I wonder what he did. Did he, did he pull out a map at that point and said, well, I think I'm going to head on up here. Did he, did he turn on a headlamp? I mean, who knows exactly what he did, but clearly he was moving on and the disciples just like a child trying to talk their parent into staying up later at night, begin to plead and to beg, please don't go on. It's dark out there. There's probably strangers out there. Uh, Mosquitoes are starting to come out. You don't want to head on. Stay here with us. They were convincing, it seems, because he ended up staying. And so he went in perhaps to their homes. We don't know for sure. The disciples were getting the food ready, perhaps, and you know that they're wondering, can't wait to continue the conversation because amidst all their grief, this is perhaps the greatest thing that they've heard in the last 24 or 72 hours even. And so they can't wait to hear more about what the stranger is going to tell them. And so they, they get the food and they sit down. And for the first time, they really see Jesus. They're not, they're not walking beside him. It's not just kind of looking at his profile. They're, they're perhaps seated right, seated right across and they can look at him. And I wonder, did one of them think, man, this guy looks familiar. But Jesus, in an interesting twist, all of a sudden he becomes the host. Because he took the bread, not the disciples. He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And at that moment, the scales of grief and depression fell from the disciples' eyes, and they saw the stranger for who he was. And in that moment, he disappeared. Can't you imagine that the disciples looked at that empty chair, and then at one another, and then back at the empty chair, and then back at one another. And, and before you know it, they're sitting there saying, well, you know, I thought it was him way back then. I, you know, when we, that first thing he said, I, I, you know, I was pretty sure. But all the while they're saying this, they're strapping up their Nike sandals because they know, they know that they can't stay there with this kind of stuff. Not with that kind of information. And so they begin to run back. They're not worried about whether it's getting late. They're not worried about robbers. They're not worried about if there's mosquitoes out there. They're not worried about anything. Because when you have met the risen Savior, you cannot keep it to yourself. You have to find others with whom you can celebrate. And so they run back to Jerusalem in record time, much like the guy yesterday at the mini marathon. And they go back back in no time fat and there they are and they greet them and Peter says I've seen the Lord and everyone begins to celebrate as the other disciples talk about how they had seen him in the breaking of the bread can't you imagine what that must have been like This is an incredible story, the story of the road to Emmaus. It's a story that that Christians for 2,000 years have held fondly in their hearts. And oftentimes when we talk about this particular story, 
We talk about what happens there at the end, at the climax, at the apex of the story, whenever Jesus reveals himself, whenever the resurrected Savior reveals himself, this extraordinary act of them seeing who the risen Savior was. And everything else that happened before, the walking to Emmaus, the talking to one another, the talking to the stranger, the inviting Jesus in, the hosting of Jesus, all of those things are merely a part of the crescendo to get to the high point of the story, the extraordinary act of the risen Savior. And that is a fine and reasonable reading of this story. And yet there is one thing with which we should be somewhat wary if we read the story in such Away, which is that we simply dismiss all of those other very ordinary and yet very significant parts of the story that lead up to their seeing who Jesus is. And I am here to suggest to you today that if we overlook those other ordinary but significant events of this story, then we also are tempted to overlook the ordinary but significant parts of our story that lead up to Resurrection Sunday. In other words, I am concerned here and at other churches across the globe that we focus so much on a Resurrection Sunday like today and in our tradition every Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday that we end up overlooking the ordinary days and the ordinary ways when we might be seeing Jesus if we but had the eyes to see him and if we but could start expecting that we focus so much on what happens in a glorious worship service like this one or what happened at Easter two Sundays ago that we forget that the resurrected Savior might really be with us on Monday and Tuesday just as he is with us today. I've been here now for uh, a few months. And so as oftentimes happens when you're new at a place, you get a lot of questions. One of the questions that people have oftentimes asked me here is, you know, how did you, uh, and they say it like that, how did you uh, marry someone as beautiful as Megan? And I, I say to them, well, she was in a point of grief, and so there were scales in front of her eyes, and she didn't know. But one of the other questions that's oftentimes asked to me, it is perhaps the most asked question, is how in the world did you go from being a Pentecostal to being a Presbyterian? Sometimes I think it's asked, and there's a question of, can you go back? But I, I think, <laughs> but oftentimes people are just curious. This is not a normal transition, really. And so they, they, they wonder, how exactly did it happen? And, and so, they, you know, oftentimes there's a curiosity about the more extraordinary parts of Pentecostalism, which, which typically leads to asking about Sunday worship. And there's certainly a lot of differences between how Presbyterians worship and Pentecostals worship. I mean, in the Presbyterian church, uh, if you are standing for more than 10 minutes in a service, you begin looking around, you get uncomfortable, you think to yourselves, you know, uh, uh, why do we even have these chairs if we can't use them. And there's this, you know, there's a sense of what's going on, right? And, and in the Pentecostal world, of course, you, when they sit there, if they sit for more than 10 minutes in a worship service, they, they look around at one another's legs and they say, why do we even have these legs if we can't use them? We, we want to get up. We want to do something. And so there's a lot of differences. You know, you've got, you've got speaking in tongues. You've 
got, you know, people who are yelling. You've got, uh, you got people raising, I know I'm yelling right now. You got people who are raising their hands. Sometimes you have an occasional runner. I mean, there are, there are extraordinary differences and there are some extraordinary aspects of Pentecostal service. And, and connected to that is, that is that there are those who are trying to figure out because Pentecostals, really, they're, they're, they're kind of growing in the world. And Presbyterians, they are growing in some parts of the world, but by and large, they're not. And so people want to know, well, why is that the case? And oftentimes, because of the extraordinary difference between our worship services, people look to Sundays. Well, it must be something different that the Pentecostals are doing on Sundays. That must be what the difference is. And I'm here to tell you, it seems to me from my own experience that the major difference that we oftentimes see between Pentecostals, perhaps let's just say Presbyterians, is not really the worship service. It is actually what happens in between the worship services. Because in my own experience, what I have noticed about Pentecostals that is oftentimes different from non-Pentecostals is that they wake up every morning expecting to see the risen Savior. That they wake up in the morning and they wonder to themselves, I wonder when I am going to see the risen Savior today. Is it going to be when I'm walking home? Is it going to be when I'm talking to a friend? Is it going to be when I talk to the stranger? Will it perhaps be when I invite somebody into my home? Or perhaps it's when I'm in someone else's home breaking bread. But the question that they are always asking themselves is, when will I see the risen Savior today? And when you wake up in the morning and you start asking yourself that question, it begins to change how you understand faith. It begins to allow your faith to start becoming alive. Imagine these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Imagine the difference between Sunday when they woke up in the morning and Monday. What do you think these disciples are thinking when they wake up on Monday morning? Where might we see him today? And when they meet a stranger, what do you think they're asking? Could this be the risen Savior? Might there be a glimpse of the risen Savior? And when someone's at their house, what might they be thinking? Might we learn something about the risen Savior today in this experience? The story about the road to Emmaus is not just what happens at the end. It's also, most importantly, also about every ordinary act that happened beforehand. And we cannot fail to see that, sisters and brothers. Because what the disciples understood after the fact and what we have to understand before the fact is the reality that the disciples were blind to Jesus for much of their journey. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we focus so much on what happens in an extraordinary worship services on Sundays that we forget the fact that Jesus is alive and is revealing himself to us every day? That we need to be a people who wake up and see Jesus on Monday when we go to work, on Tuesday when we go to school, on Wednesday when we're at the doctor's office, on Thursday when we're meeting with friends, on Friday when we're going out to eat for dinner, on Saturdays when we're at Lions Park or wherever else it is that we gather together with others, that we have to begin seeing and celebrating and looking for Jesus every day of the week. And I promise you this, that when we begin to expect to see Jesus throughout the week, we will see him. Now that doesn't mean that we have to make things up. I mean, quite honestly, there are times in the Pentecostal world when I'm thinking, you know what? 
A conversation with a stranger might just be a conversation with a stranger. But I will also promise you this, that when you are awake and alert to where the resurrected Savior might be, you will begin to see him. And when you do, even in the most ordinary of acts and in the most ordinary of days, you will be changed. Now, it would be easy, I suppose, for us to end right there, for me to just simply say, let's go out expecting to see Jesus. But this week, something else came to mind as I was thinking about this passage. As I said, I've only been here four months, and yet I've realized something, and I really realize it fully this week, that I've really begun to fall in love with something here at ZPC. Now, I'm not talking about you. Uh, And um, I I mean, you guys are great. You guys are great. What I'm talking about is is beer bread. Um, Beer bread? Does anyone know what beer bread is? You expected a spiritual word, didn't you? Uh, Beer bread is Greek uh, for incredibly amazing bread. How many of you have ever had beer bread? Yeah, well, you see, you don't know that not everyone has beer bread. And the first time I had beer bread was here at ZPC. And it's a godsend. There's no question about it. And, And what happened, the reason why this got brought up is that on Wednesday, a family from ZPC came over and they brought us a meal. It was kind of unexpected, kind of out of the blue. And as a part of that, they brought beer bread because they knew that I liked beer bread, okay? Now, this is not, Megan thinks, this is some cheap way for me to get you all to start bringing me more beer bread. It is not that. There is a sign up. <laughs> okay, you can leave. And so, um, but they brought over this whole meal. And after they left, I, I, I said to Megan, I said, you know, they, they really are just, just a, a graceful and a giving people. And when I said it at first, I was really just thinking about the family. But, but as, I, as I thought about it more, I realized I was talking about this church family. I mean, we have had in these last four months, we have come as strangers. And many of you have had been strangers. And so we have talked and, and, and communicated as strangers. We have, uh, we have been invited into many of your homes. We have broken bread and beer bread and dessert together. And I want you to know something, that while that may seem very ordinary for you, while those may seem like ordinary acts on ordinary days and that they're not nearly as important as what we do right here, I want you to know something, that Megan and I receive those not just as kind acts, but as acts of grace from the risen Savior. I want you to know that we learn and experience the risen Savior when you give of yourself in these small but significant ways. Jesus didn't spend a ton of time telling you to do kind things, but what he did do is spend a lot of time telling you that you are called to reflect the image of the invisible God. And what you need to do, I don't say these things to flatter you, but to tell you that when you do this, don't just think, well, we're trying to be nice. No, you are allowing others glimpses of the risen Savior when you do these ordinary acts on ordinary days, and it can't help but change people when you do that. Megan and I, And I say this not flippantly, we are changed when we receive these ordinary acts of grace. 
One of the things that we have to do as we go out is not simply to go out saying, let's look for Jesus, though we certainly need to do that. We also need each and every day to go out saying, how might we be reflections? How might we in some small, what may seem like insignificant way, how might we reflect the grace of the risen Savior? What happens on Sunday mornings is powerful and can oftentimes, as it was on Easter, be extraordinary. But I want you to know that if you want to fully experience the risen Savior, then you need to start looking for Jesus on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And when you do, and we all go out and see Jesus in these ways, and we bring Jesus in these ways. When we come together as a group of people, we come together full of a beautiful testimony of what Christ has done in our lives. My question to you is, do you, are you a people who are willing to go out and to look for the resurrected Savior? Are you a people who are willing and able to go out and to look for the resurrected Savior? And will we be a people who say we want to go out and do things, ordinary things for people, not just because we want to be nice or because we want to hear them say thank you, but because we want them to experience the risen Savior? Can we be that people? Then let's do it. And then let's come back together again and let's testify to how we have seen Jesus this week. May it be so. Amen.